Happy Monday. This is John Halsman reporting in with our little local newsletter to the world. And we begin the Monday by looking at some very odd things going on as the U.S. sleepwalks through its strategic policy and in that vacuum allows others to fill the void. And that's always dangerous. And in this case, I mean, our ally, um, Volodymyr Zelensky, um, as many people have said, I don't worry about my enemies so much as they do my friends. Um, and we were quite right, as those of you who follow this uh, weekly with me, we were quite right in my mind to support Zelensky and the brave Ukrainians fighting off the Russian onslaught of their country and giving them wherewithal in a limited manner right after the invasion. Uh, we were quite, quite right to diplomatically stand up for them. And some of the sanctions, though not all that we've put on the Russians, were also quite the right thing to do. Uh, and despite his almost endless verbal gaffes, Joe Biden's administration, at least, has hewed to a very clear line that we would be an arsenal for democracy, more of an arsenal than I'd like. But to some extent, that's right. Rather than appeasing Putin, as many Western Europeans would like to do, would end the war tomorrow if they could in France, Italy, and Germany. As polling suggests, and as the energy policy of their ruinous governments bites, you'll see more of this. That that's the wrong policy, and so is the endless Polish desire to burn Moscow, the Eastern Europeans who are demanding rollback in the face of Russia having nuclear weapons. And at least on the surface, the Biden people have held to this middle ground of supporting Ukraine with weaponry while not allowing the war to expand. But the problem with not spelling out America's war aims over Ukraine is that into this vacuum, others try to push the United States. And I don't blame them for doing this. This is what diplomacy is about. But this is why we must not abdicate our strategic policy to Volodymyr Zelensky, whose goals and aims and interests are simply different than ours. That isn't to be negative to him. If I were a Ukrainian cabinet officer, I'd want to expand the war aims too, because you want to drag the United States into the war more and more as your ally to help you fight off the Russians. It would be better if they did this militarily, but you certainly want a blank check so that supplies keep coming. That is certainly in Ukraine's interests, but it is not in American interests. The problem is, as America doesn't spell out its strategic interests, it is easy for Zelensky, who has very specific goals, defeat the Russians at all costs, to fill that void. And this weekend, you could see this happening. One of the things that Zelensky said this weekend was this Russian war began with Crimea and must end with Crimea with its liberation. Let's think about this statement. This is after the Ukrainians shot off a number of missiles into Crimea itself as well as into Russia proper, thereby trying to expand the war. And Zelensky says this Russian war began with Crimea and must end with Crimea with its liberation. Who in the world in the United States signed on for this. This is not the American position. We don't have a position. We say it is unjust in 2014 that Putin's satrapies gained control of Crimea and gained control of much of the Donbass, particularly Donetsk or Luhansk. Quite rightly, we say that that is illegal. We don't say we're going to use military force to liberate Crimea. But in not saying anything, we help Zelensky fill this void and this is becoming very dangerous because more and more Zelensky wants to expand the war as the stalemate brews, as we see the Russians not be able to win the war outright, but also the Ukrainians not being able to begin to roll back the Russians 
as we settle into a stalemate, more and more the strategic vacuum is a huge problem with Zelensky trying to increase American involvement in the war. Again, I don't blame him for this. If I were a Ukrainian nationalist, that would be my position. But I'm not a Ukrainian nationalist. I'm an American nationalist, and I worry about American national interests first, Western national interests overall second, and Ukrainian national interests a very poor third. This is how realism works. And the problem was without spelling out America's war aims over the Russia-Ukrainian war were allowing Zelensky to at least rhetorically fill the gap and pressure the United States. And again, the reason we must not allow this to happen is, first of all, our interests are just not the same. The Ukrainians want to expand the war, want to drag the United States into the war as much as humanly possible. They'd love to do it militarily, but secondarily, if they can't do it militarily, they want an open blank checkbook that they can add to to get weapons whenever they like. Um, and because the United States is not making it clear what it wants to do, as a result, this gives Zelensky room to fill the void and pressure the United States. It very much is not in America's interest to do this, because at the end of the war, whatever the outcome, Russia will still be a chastened, isolated, vengeful great power, and the United States will have to deal with it like it does the other great powers of the world, India, Japan, the Anglosphere, and China. You don't get to pick and choose who you get to deal with in the world. Foreign policy is more than just talking to the Canadians. Boring though that can be, and safe though that can be. One has to actually talk to one's enemies and one's rivals, and Russia's not going away. And so we must be very careful not to subcontract our strategic policy to Volodymyr Zelensky, who, along with Poland, would burn the Kremlin to the ground if he could. And the problem with this rollback philosophy of Crimea at all is that you would then increase the chance of a tactical nuclear war. And I can't even believe I'm saying this. That's why the United States should be far more specific about its war aims. So one, our interests don't line up the same as Zelensky's, and that's utterly understandable. But nobody seems to ever say this, and we really ought to. Two, we don't know that the Ukrainians are going to win the war. And so allowing them to then man the drive the car when they may not get what they want is really disastrous. To win the war, we have to think that Ukraine can outright win the war with NATO backing and roll back Russia, all without a tactical nuclear war ensuing in Ukraine. Two, we think that sanctions will hurt Russia more than Europe. Now, with the energy sanctions, I think this is very much an open question. Let's see how unified Western Europe is to the plight of the Ukrainians when things start getting cold and two decades of their ruinous, idiotic, self-harming energy policy. And all of you who laughed at me, and yes, I mean you, Steinmeier et al. in Germany, ought to be fired immediately for what you did. But we are where we are, as we'd say in foreign policy and sanctions, that sanctions hurt Russia more than Europe over energy policy is not at all a sure thing. Russia is pivoting, and with the increase in price, is doing just as well energy-wise as before because of the rise in the price of oil because of the sanctions. This is how economics works, and they're finding ready markets where its oil production is not going down nearly as much as people thought. Don't believe the Yale study that this is devastating Russia. It's certainly hurting Russia, the sanctions, but it's managing to sell its oil at a cut-rate price, but with the increase in price, that about evens out, and it's selling it to ready customers like energy-starved India and China. And it's important to remember the emerging market is not on board Western sanctions. In fact, of the 10 most populous countries in the world, only one, the United States, is unambiguously for Ukraine. 
in this war. So the emerging market markets are hedging. The developing world, much as happened during the first Cold War, is hedging during the second Cold War between the U.S. and the West and Russia and China. It's waiting to see. And this gives Russia a ready outlet to sell its oil. So the idea that the sanctions, particularly energy sanctions, are going to hurt Russia more than Europe is also an open question. Certainly, as I just said, the notion that the rest of the world beyond the West is going to support what the West is doing regarding Russia, that's not happened either. And the notion that sanctions will critically weaken Russia, and by that I mean in policy terms to the point that Russia changes what it's doing. If, if sanctions make a country change its policies in your favor, they work. If they don't, then they don't. And so far, all four of those points are an open question. One, that Ukraine can retake and roll back Russian gains with NATO help, and that doing this will not provoke a tactical nuclear war, and that it can be done in the first place is problematic. Two, that sanctions will hurt Russia more than Europe, particularly energy sanctions. That's open to doubt. Three, that the rest of the world will support the West. Well, that's not happened. Again, nine of the 10 most populous countries in the world, including India and China, Brazil, throw in Brazil, Indonesia, are hedging. They're not supporting the Western view. And four, that sanctions will critically weaken Russia to the point that Putin changes his policy. If these things don't happen, then what you've got is a stalemate. You don't have the brave new world of Zelensky talking about easily rolling back Russian gains. So that's not doesn't seem to be the world that we're living in or are going to live in. So one, A, uh, our interests in the Ukrainians don't line up the same for America and Ukraine, as we've said. And two, the narrative being spun by those who want to give Ukraine a blank check. I'm talking about you, Ann Applebaum. I'm talking about you, neocons. I'm talking about you, liberal Wilsonian hawks at the Atlantic. Uh, the narrative you're spinning isn't backed up by reality. And so let's be careful about writing blank checks for people whose narrative isn't coming true. We're writing a blank check for people who at best are engaged in a stalemate. And so for both these major and significant reasons, the United States shouldn't just hand over the keys of the car and say good luck to what happens. And this is the problem with not making things clear. The other geostrategic danger with getting increasingly enmeshed in Ukraine without declaring clearly what American policies are, is that geostrategically, this diverts attention from the main event. And the main event is the Indo-Pacific. As we've said many times, the Indo-Pacific is where it's at. It's where all the risk and all the reward are in the future. And the United States should be focusing like a laser beam on the region of the world that is going to provide most of the world's future economic growth, and at the same time will provide much of the world's future political risk as the superpowers China and the United States vie for dominance, particularly in East Asia, the South China and East China seas. And this is all a distraction. Um, for goodness sake, the Europeans, when you put them together collectively, have a GDP roughly equal to that of the United States. Russia has a GDP roughly equal to that of the state of Texas. So Europe, the size of the United States in GDP, Russia, the size of Texas in terms of GDP, and yet, and yet, and yet, the Europeans, after 50 years of being involved in NATO, um, still are hiding behind mother's apron here and are unable or unwilling, more importantly, to actually put the wherewithal for Ukraine, either in terms of helping them militarily or giving them supplies. 
And the people really doing this are first and foremost the U.S., which is giving more than the rest of the world to Ukraine put together. And that should tell you something. I can't care more about European security than the Europeans do. And yet this often, often happens. The Europeans do nothing and live off the United States while secretly despising us from the safety of a cafe. And I feel like Colonel Jessup and a few good men, you despise me while I provide the liberty that you take for granted. And, the, you know, 50 years of this is enough. Obviously, waiting for the Germans to spend real money on defense has been a strategic loser for the last 50 years. They are the ones that must deal with regional threats. And Russia is a regional threat. It's a great power, not a superpower. This is not a global threat. Ukraine is a second or third order priority for the United States. But if you're Poland, yeah, it's a first order priority. If you're, if you're a European, it's either a primary or a secondary priority, meaning it matters more to Europe in terms of geography. And let's never forget the geo and geostrategic as to what happens in Ukraine than it does in the United States. And yet, the United States is the one footing the bill, even though the United States also has school systems in utter chaos after the teachers' unions took us all hostage during the COVID days. That has our bridges falling apart, our airports falling apart, things basically not working anymore. And rather than put these billions of dollars to use, we've given $45 billion to the Ukrainians while the Europeans have gone on their holiday for August. And this is just obscene and needs to stop. The United States cannot love European security more than the Europeans. The United States cannot take third order priorities and spend $45 billion on it while ignoring the primary priority, which is the Indo-Pacific. Tough love is in order. It's time to begin to wean the Europeans off the narcotic of American military spending. We must help always support NATO, and we have a solemn commitment to our NATO treaty organization members through Article 5. Beyond that, it's up to them to decide if they care enough to actually have a defense. The Germans spend around 1.5% on defense. They're talking about increasing it. If they really care, they need to put their money where their mouth is. Enough of them talking and lecturing me what to do with my army. Geostrategically, none of what's going on makes any sense at all. And this leads me to my last point. And I would say this with all due respect to President Zelensky, who has been Churchillian and heroic in defending his homeland from the Russians. And for that, we are all um, impressed. But here's the bottom line, sir. You don't get to tell me what to do with my money and my army. You don't get to assume you have an inalienable right to the American taxpayers' dollars. You don't. And yet, because no one has gotten in his face and say, look, it's my birthday party, I get to pick the show tunes, because no one gets in his face and say, it's our money and our army. And I say this at meeting after meeting in Europe. You don't get to tell me what to do with my army. You've chosen not to have one. The Ukrainians chose to disregard American intelligence, which said the invasion was happening. Zelensky himself poo-pooed this notion, saying it wouldn't come to pass that the Americans were being hysterical, that he understood the Russians, as I famously hear all the time here in Europe. And of course, they don't. And the invasion came and American intelligence, along with British intelligence, got this exactly right. And now they want to use my army and have a blank check to my taxpayer. You don't get that. We have specific goals and strategic aims in the Russo-Ukrainian war. They are to stop the Russians from taking over Ukraine, from, from emasculating it, from swallowing it, from making it a satrap of Moscow. I would agree with that, and we should give wherewithal to that extent. I do not want to pay for the liberation 
of Crimea. I do not want to endlessly spend upteen billion dollars that are desperately needed domestically to help Zelensky pursue his pipe dream of pipe dream of reunifying his country with my army defending the NATO borders and my tax dollars paying for Ukrainians who don't have any tax dollars because they live in a corrupt country that barely has a functional capitalistic system. Bottom line, you don't get to tell me what to do with my army and my wherewithal that we are paying for. This is how the world works. And it's up even if the United States under Biden wants to pursue a more pro-Ukrainian policy than I do. It's up to Biden to fill the strategic void and explain proactively what American interests are in Ukraine. I've made it very clear. They are secondary. They are to stop it from being swallowed. They're to give it enough wherewithal to grind things down into a stalemate. But I don't want to stay indefinitely, pay indefinitely, and they're never getting into NATO. Bottom line, I am specifically laying out what I think, why I think, and the policy outputs that come from that. If you are not that specific, you speak in these generalities. And Biden says things like, well, it's up to Zelensky to decide uh, what aims he wants. No, it's not. No, it's not. It absolutely is not up to Zelensky to decide what aims he wants in the war. The reason being, I'm paying for his war. And because I'm writing the checks for the war, guess what? I'm only writing the checks insofar as it's in my interest to do so, not in Zelensky's interest. This is the magic trick that's happening at the end of this, and it must come to an end. It is up to Biden to show some backbone and not just say, I'm subcontracting American strategic policy over the first major war in Europe in memory to Volodymyr Zelensky, the leader of a third-rate country with endemic corruption problems that was barely functional before and rightly wasn't considered ready for NATO. And now we're going to let them subcontract out our strategic policy regarding Russia and regarding the war? Only a lunatic or a very lazy person would do that. And it's up to the Democrats to prove that they're neither. Thank you very much. Happy to get this one off my chest and start the week with a fire-breathing peace. The U.S. must not abdicate its strategic policy to Zelensky for all the reasons I've outlined here. Realism dictates that we actually have a proactive policy and not merely react. Not that we want to feel good, but that we actually do good. And doing good is safeguarding the security, first and foremost, of the American people and secondarily of the West, and only a very poor third of Zelensky and Ukraine, much as one sympathizes. So saying that, please do subscribe for those of you who've enjoyed this and for those of you who've subscribed. And again, we're so grateful that this has taken off. Please do give. We're asking only $70 a year, the price of one of my beloved espressos that I'm about to make for $70 a year. We will continue to give you the most cutting edge political risk we can out there and say things that you don't see in the mainstream media that actually make sense. Have a great week and we'll end the week with another. But I wanted to start us off thinking, thinking hard about U.S. policy or non-policy toward the war. Thanks a lot and have a great week.